The Dave Berta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. I'm Dave Cornoyer, and you're listening to the Dave Berta Podcast. We're recording this episode on July 27th, 2020, and I am thrilled to be joined today, as on every podcast, by our excellent producer, Adam Rosenhart. Hey, Adam, how's your summer been going? Pretty good, Dave. Uh, it's nice to get a little bit of extreme heat after all the extreme rain yeah. we've been having. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's thirty one degrees in Edmonton today, which uh, which is insane. And uh, we you know we we only get a few days a year where it's uh, where it's above the above the thirty mark. So it's it was quite hot today. Um, yeah. Did you get a chance to get out and enjoy the heat? Uh, I mean, I I got out and avoided the heat. I'm hoping that uh, when we're done recording, uh, maybe I'll spend a little bit of time outside uh, under a under an umbrella, of course, and in a uh, in a in a pool of filled with ice cubes or something, right? <laughs> yeah, with some beer and stuff. <laughs> that sounds perfect. That sounds perfect. Well, it is it is the 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 heat of the summer here here in Alberta. Uh, so uh, so it's hot. And it's raining because it wouldn't be a summer in Alberta without heat and without lots of rain and lots of thunderstorms, which is uh, which is a lot of fun to watch. And uh, uh, unless, of course, you you know you're a, you're a victim of hail damage or, or whatnot. And uh, and in this in that case, you have our sincere condolences. Um, but uh, because it's summertime, uh, I sent out a tweet the other day asking for suggestions for a summer reading list for an Alberta politics summer reading list. So first, I just first of all, I just want to thank everyone who sent in their suggestions. Um, it was just like a random tweet because I, I was just putting together a list in my head and I thought, well, I'll see, you know, I'll, I'll try to crowdsource this and see what uh, what people are reading or what their, you know, what their favorite Alberta politics books are. And, and we got a ton of responses back, uh, which is great. So, I mean, thanks to everybody uh, who, uh, who sent in your suggestions. I'm going to uh, compile the full list and put it on uh, daveberta.ca uh, at some point this week. Uh, so if you haven't sent me in your suggestion yet, uh, feel free to uh, to continue to send them in, and I'll uh, I'll post them. So anyway, that was pretty cool. Now I, I would assume that you would know a lot of Alberta politics books out there. Were there any submissions from folks that surprised you that you hadn't heard of? Uh, there were a few actually. There was um, I'm trying to think. I'm just pulling the list up, pulling the list up right here. There were a few. I mean, there's there's the ones a lot of the a lot of the the ones that people mentioned. They mentioned. Um, King Ralph by Don Martin, which is kind of one that's been around for a number of years, focused on Ralph Klein, uh, Orange Chinook, and uh, which was won by a number of professors down in Calgary. It's kind of a compilation of, of essays on the NDP winning in 2015. Um, Notley Nation, which is, was a popular book a few, uh, released a few years ago, was written by Don Braid and Sidney Sharp. Um, those are kind of like some of the the the, the main ones. Are people, a lot of people mentioned uh, one of Kevin Taft's five or six or a dozen books that he's written about Alberta politics over the past twenty years. But there were a few that uh, that I'd forgotten about and that I hadn't heard of. So one of the ones that I'd forgotten about that's kind of a a classic for Alberta politics and, and like a, a real kind of primer for anybody who wants to understand the kind of the broader history of Alberta politics. It's called Democracy in Alberta. It's social credit, social credit, and the party system, and it's by C. B. McPherson. And I think this book was written in the 1950s. It was either the 50s or the 60s. And it really, um, yeah, I mean, so it provides like a historical context from Alberta up until that point. But, uh, you know, a lot of that stuff is still relevant for today in terms of talking about the regional, uh, you know, kind of the regional grievances that uh, that the West has or the regional politics uh, of, of Alberta and the West and, and how... Um, how Alberta politics and individualism and 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 conservatism kind of developed in the prairies um, mm. through you know through moving through more progressive uh, progressive period with United Farmers and then to into a quite a, a quite radical period through the Social Credit Party and then how the kind of the Social Credit Party developed into more of a, a generic conservative party and and kind of the impact that that those the churning politics of Alberta during that period had on national politics at the time and, and what that looked like in national politics. So that was definitely one. I haven't read that book in years since I was at uh, uh, the University of Alberta studying poli-sci. So that's definitely one that I'm, I'm going to kind of check mark back on my, on my list and, and uh, try to get back, try to find a copy of it. And which I'm sure I can from the, I'm sure I can find one in the public library, but, but uh, I'm sure there's one floating around, but that, that one, that one was a, uh, was good to see that one on the list again. Yeah. I, I'm going to suggest one that I'm reading right now. That's not really about 
Alberta politics exactly, but but Alberta politics figure into it uh, quite prominently because so it's it's called CKUA Radio Worth uh, Fighting For. It was written by Mary Lou Walters, and it's the history of CKUA. But of course, CKUA was created at the University of Alberta in the twenties, and then the government got involved, and the CRTC got involved, and uh, the federal government got involved, and and it's just got this this through line of politics being sort of at the edge of what CKUA, CKUA was doing. And I, I think that that part of the story is, it's not, it's not the story. I mean, it, it's more like the history of like how the radio station evolved, but politics figured prominently in its history. So if, if you want to, if you want to learn a little bit about radio history and a sprinkling of politics, that might be a good one to add to your list, Dave. Oh, that's I definitely, yeah, I'll definitely add, I'll add that one to the list. That's great. Um, yeah. CKUA. I mean, it's, you know, one of, if not Alberta's oldest radio station, or one one of the yes. oldest radio, yeah, oldest operating radio station in Alberta. Um, it, uh, I mean, growing up uh, in in small town Alberta, I mean, it, CKOA was always on on the dial uh, mm-hmm. with my parents listening to it. And I remember in the '90s when the government, I think the government, provincial government, pulled its funding of CKOA, and then it almost dis- almost went off air and disappeared, and then it became a lot more of a, a more more of a listener focused, or pardon me, a listener supported. Um, uh, operation, from what I understand, um, yeah. yeah, that's kind of the, the formative memory that I have. But reading about the, kind of the history of it would be fascinating. So that's yeah, great, Adam. Thanks. Right on. I'm glad I could contribute something to the show. Yeah. No. Oh, you can you contribute more, more, more than uh, than anybody knows on every show. Thanks, buddy. Uh, today we're going to do a Q and A episode, aren't we? We are. Yeah. It's uh, it's the middle of the summer, and uh, you know nothing's going on in Alberta politics these days. So we thought <laughs> uh, you know just open the door for a question and answer session. Yeah. And we're just, just a note uh, for the historical record. We are at the second height of the COVID-19 pandemic as we record this episode. So yes. And, and know. it's, and it's the end of July and the legislature is still sitting until Thursday. So it's, yes. that's, very, that's, that's unusual. Um, the ledge usually doesn't go into July um, mostly because MLAs like to be in their constituencies um, for barbecue season and, but there's no real barbecue season happening this year and because of COVID and, uh, it's unbearably hot in the legislature because the air conditioning isn't great. So that's usually why they they don't go this late into (laughs) into July, but it's a strange year and and for, uh, for many reasons. Yeah. And that Jason can, he's a real legislative tyrant, I guess. So why don't we'll we'll, we'll talk about that. (laughs) Yeah. Let's get right into it. Uh, Of course, no Q and a session on the Dave Berta podcast would be complete without a question from Mountain Ted. Mountain Ted says, happy summer, folks. Here's my question. To what degree do you see the parks privatization initiative becoming a mainstream issue? Dave, the NDP have really been pushing this. They've got the don't go breaking my parks campaign out there. What do you think's going on here? Well, first of all, thanks so much for the question, Mountain Ted. Uh, always appreciate always appreciate your questions. Um, the 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 yeah. So the NDP ran this "Don't Go Break in My Parks" campaign, and I have the uh, it was it Elton John and Kiki. Uh, no, what's what's the name of the the, uh, the other singer? Anyway, the "Don't yeah, Go Break in My Heart." Yeah, it anyway, was a duet. I, it was a duet. Anyway, I've had this stuff. Have it, I saw that that their uh, their kind of their memes they put out, and I had that song stuck in my head ever since. Anytime someone's brought it up, um, so thanks thanks for that. Um, so yeah, so we did an episode uh, a few episodes ago where we talked with with uh, with Annalise Klingbeil about uh, about the situation with Alberta Parks and the Alberta government's move to close or uh, close or partially close. I think it was around twenty or thirty provincial parks and natural areas, and then they created this list of one hundred and sixty four parks and natural areas and and wilderness areas around the province where they were going to fi- try to find third-party groups to kind of take over the operations of the parks. And, and you know, keep in mind that that the groups that they talked about were, oh, well, municipalities or First Nations groups or, or, or not-for-profits. But this was happening at the same time as the province was chopping funding to municipalities, chopping grants for, third, for, uh, for, uh, for not-for-profit groups. So, so the, the fear is uh, that these parks when the provincial government it inevitably is not going to be able to find um uh third party groups or municipalities to operate many of them that these parks will be downgraded from provincial park status or or provincial uh um uh, wilderness area or natural area status which gives them certain uh, a significant amount of protections around uh, what the what can be done on the land, 
uh, in terms of conservation and protection of animals and flora and fauna on the land. Uh, and then that would be downgraded to crown land, which would open it, which would remove many of the protections that were put on there uh, in the past to, pr to protect this land for, for the future of Albertans and for Albertans to enjoy uh, and conserve. Uh, and then once it goes down to crown land, then it's open to all sorts of things like hunting, ATVs. Uh, and then when it becomes crown land, it becomes very easy for the government to then sell. Uh, so one of the, the kind of back and forth arguments I've been hearing or talking points I've been hearing in the legislature over the past few weeks is the opposition saying the government is going to, the UCP wants to sell Alberta's parks. Uh, and then Jason Nixon, the Minister of Environment Parks, gets up and says, well, no, we're not selling any parks. Uh, and I, I mean, I, he's probably technically true because they won't actually sell the parks while they're parks. If they downgrade them to crown land, then they'll sell them and they'll no longer be parks at that point. So there's a bit of like political talking point maneuvering going on there. But to, so that's, that's kind of the kind of the, a bit of the background to it. To get back to Mountain Ted's great question is to what degree do we see the parks privatization initiative becoming a mainstream issue? I think it is a mainstream issue. I mean, the, the this is an issue that, I mean, when you talk about provincial parks, it really crosses uh, demographics it, de in terms of, of the demographic population. It, cr it crosses regional, um, the region, regional bits in, the, in terms of the population. You don't have many provincial parks inside the big cities. I mean, you have um, Fish Creek Provincial Park in, in Calgary. Uh, no, I think Nose Hill is, is a provincial park. I'll, people can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, you have Lois Hole Park here in, in just outside of Edmonton. You have the Strathcona Science Provincial Park, which is a wonderful little park if you don't get if you haven't had a chance to go visit it. I, I, right out right outside the city limits at Edmonton. Um, but most of these provincial parks and provincial areas are in the rural areas. So you have a lot of support for I mean there's a lot of support for provincial provincial parks in the urban and in the and in the rural areas. But it's going to impact Alberta Albertans differently. So in the from so starting with Albertans in the, in the urban areas, I mean, I think the idea for, for, for quite a number, quite a few people, and we see the polling to back this up, um, people support provincial parks and they don't want to see them privatized and they don't want to see them removed. They don't, you know, and they want these, these parks conserved and preserved and, and have, you know, be there for the, for Albertans in the urban areas to go and visit. So, you know, there's, there's that. So people in, in the urban areas aren't necessarily in the big cities aren't necessarily living right beside the provincial parks, but they want them to be there and they understand the importance of protecting and conserving these parks for future generations. And that, that, you know, no government really has a mandate to get rid of parks. Um, and then in the rural areas, there's the question of what would closing these parks or downgrading these parks uh, what impact would that have to local tourism? What impact would that have to local employment in terms of people who either locals who either work at the provincial parks in, in the rural areas or uh, people who work or own small businesses in some of these small towns where people who go camping, um, you know, up at Slave Lake or go camping down uh, down uh, in, you know, somewhere up north or somewhere down south? What, what impact would closing the parks have on local businesses and in terms of tourism, which is huge in some of these small communities. So I think this is across a, 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 a mainstream issue. I think the challenge is, is that there's also about like 15 other mainstream big issues people are debating politically right now here in Alberta, because this government has been um, going after and, you know, been aggressively going after every single piece of, uh, of, uh, of their their platform at the same time, and and it and many of them are extremely controversial. So I don't know, you know, it, it's going to be interesting to see what what ends up on top in terms of what become what becomes the the big defining issue. Um, but you know, with with all these issues being debated, you know, you have schools and doctors and municipal municipalities and you know issues with with funding for rural uh, for rural municipalities and then you have parks as well and you know you have all these groups who are competing for competing for for attention and yes this is an important issue and i think it is a mainstream issue but um i mean the this government is approaching policy change and legislative change intentionally doing it all at the same time in order to kind of muddy the waters and make it difficult for groups to get attention so it is a mainstream issue. I parks are a mainstream issue. That's that's my yeah. my opinion. <laughs> there you go. Uh, thanks for the question, Mountain Ted. Uh, now we've got a series of questions here from Lost and Curious. Also, I think Lost and Curious is also a frequent flyer of ours, right, Dave? Yeah, yeah. Questions. Uh, Lost and Curious sends us questions uh, frequently. Cool. So thanks, okay. Thanks. Well, uh, there the first bit of questions are about federal politics. Um, what is the likelihood of Justin Trudeau stepping down? 
before the next election, or do you think he tries for a third mandate? Now, we're less than a year in, right, for Justin yeah. Trudeau. Yeah, yeah. The, elect, the last uh, federal election was October 2019. I, I don't think Justin Trudeau steps down before the next election. I think it's too... Uh, the liberals are in too much too, and are in too much of a precarious situation, uh, being in a minority situation with with the opposition being able to kind of pull the plug any and you know at any opportunity they can. Um, I think a lot of it will depend on who the federal conservatives choose as their leader. Mm. Um, I mean, right now it looks like I mean people tell me that Peter McKay has uh, has a has a lead in terms of memberships uh, memberships sold, but a lot of people here in Alberta are, are backing. Um, uh, Aaron O'Toole. Um, so, I mean, I, I just, you know, which would, depending on which, which one of those candidates wins, it seems like McKay might be the leader. Um, that might change the dynamic as well. I mean, Peter McKay has been out of the, uh, out of the public eye for, for a number of years and, you know, we'll see if he's able to reinvigorate, reinvigorate the conservatives or, you know, give them the kind of boost that Andrew Shear wasn't able to. So mm -hmm. I, th I mean, I, I think it depends. I have a hard time. I mean, the, the, the liberals seem to be dripping with scandal right now with the situation with we and the 900 million dollars and um and they're really not really not handling that that well yeah. um but i don't you know i i, I think trudeau seems to be that he's still firmly in, in in charge of this party at this point it's interesting because it seems like the the fed the the liberals federally are what the conservatives are provincially in alberta like they can kind of do anything and there aren't any real consequences, at least as far as their political fortunes go. Now, of course, we had an NDP government for four years, but that was a blip. So, yeah, so yeah, who I mean, knows? Yeah, I mean, the, the the you know both the liberals. I mean, liberals are they call you know the natural governing party of Canada. I mean, they've been in, been in government for you know ninety percent of the past past fifty years or something like this. Some some insane number like that. Um, you know, this is a party with, it's a big tent party with broad support across the country and, 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 uh, and strong, you know, strong brand recognition and brand loyalty, voter loyalty. Um, but I, I yeah, I mean, it, looking, you know, it, I have, I have a hard time seeing Trudeau, Trudeau stepping down before the next election. Um, just going back to that point, but yeah, I mean, the, the liberals are the natural governing party of Canada, it seems, and conservatives, I mean, at least the old progressive conservative, the old progressive conservative party was very, very much a natural governing party and, and very similar to the liberals. That's the other thing is a lot of people, you know, they, they, they talk about, you know, Alberta being, you know, a very conservative province. And yes, politically it is, it, it does have some very conservative elements, but the old progressive conservative party was very much a big tent blue party. And, and there were some very conservative elements inside that party, but there were also some very moderate conservative elements inside. And that's, that's, that, that is what's missing from the current United Conservative Party government is, is yeah. they have not been acting like a big tent political, like a big tent broad political party. They're very much a, a C conservative party. And, um, you know, there are some individuals who used to be in the, you know, leaders in the progressive conservative party who I would suspect probably are very uncomfortable with some of the stuff that the UCP is doing and particularly the leadership of Jason Kenney. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that actually brings us to Lost and Curious's next question. Uh, given that Jason Kenney is the only official to not get a ratings bump and the NDP's recent uh, fundraising success, which we, you can brief us on, Dave, what do you think the NDP's chances are in the next election, <laughs> which is three years away? And please, God, can it come sooner? That's what Lost and Curious said. So, Dave, first of all, the NDP reported its quarterly fundraising numbers, and you posted on DaveBerta.ca about it. What did you have to say? I did, yeah. It was the first time since, uh, uh, you know, I mean, these are, co are COVID times, so they're weird times. Uh, but uh, the second quarter of 2020, which covers April to June of 2020, uh, every quarter, Elections Alberta releases the financial disclosures that the political parties are required to submit, which shows how much money they've raised, they're fundraised, and and um, individuals who are the parties have to put all the put all you know file all their all the, all the money they've raised in total but only those who donate more than $250 are named are like listed so you get to see their names um this was a strange quarter the ndp raised more money than the united conservative party and this yeah. is the first time i think this is the first time since it was either the first or the third quarter of 2017 was the last time that the ndp raised more money than the ucp and that would have been right when the ucp had just uh just become a political just become a, an official political party when the um 
the merger of the UC of the Waldros and the PC caucuses that happened. Um, so the NDP raised over a million dollars in the second quarter of 2020, and the United Conservative Party raised about $640,000, which was, I think, might have been their lowest, and it was their lowest in quite a while, because the UCP raised more than $7 million in 2020, or pardon me, 2019, which was a, an incredible sum of money for any political party to raise uh, in Alberta. I think it was the most any political party had raised. So why, I mean, I had a lot of questions about why uh, why the NDP did so well in the second quarter? Well, first of all, it was it was a strange quarter to fundraising because it was during the lockdown, during the economic shutdown um, at the beginning of the co or in the the kind of the heat of the what we now now believe to be the could it could have been the first wave of of COVID uh, here in Alberta. Um, so political parties weren't doing the kind of traditional fundraising. There weren't barbecues or lobster roasts or or lobster boils or pig roasts or uh, you know, those, those kind of traditional things that the politicians do, the kind of boiled chicken dinners. Um, there were, there were none, none of that was happening, but the NDP did do some fundraising. So the UCP basically, they were doing their kind of email campaigns, you know, the parties send out their annoying emails about how, uh, you know, how bad the other side is and you need to give us money to fight the other side. And, and both the UCP and the NDP were doing that. The NDP did a little, a little bit more, um, in terms of fundraising, they had some Zoom events where they'd have musicians. You could like to do it was a Zoom brunch that an MLA would host, and there'd be a musician who would play, or there'd be a guest speaker. So there was a little bit of that. I don't know how particularly how much money they raised from those, but I think with with everything that's going on in the legislature, with the uh, the United Conservative Party government, their ongoing Tyler Shandro's ongoing fight with with Alberta doctors with the uh, changes to pensions, changes to, uh, you know, constant attacks on teachers, constant attacks on nurses, on healthcare workers. Um, I think that probably did a lot to energize the NDP's base. So I think that like uh, the NDP gave a lot, gave the, the, the UCP gave the NDP a lot to go with, a lot to, to, uh, to pitch their, uh, pitch their donor base with. So I think they're, 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 they have a donor base that is energized. Um, and the UCP, you know, their base might just might not be as energized at the moment. Um, and the party isn't actively going out and doing constituency fundraisers. So, I mean, I think this shows that the NDP has a vibrant base of support in terms of, of, of donors. Um, you know, we have a competitive political environment in this province, which is something that we haven't really had. Uh, there's just something that is, that is, is quite new. Um, it's not normal for opposition parties to be out fundraising the governing party. Uh, especially a conservative party in Alberta. I mean, there's really no excuse for the UCP to only be raising $600,000 in one quarter. Like this is yeah. a party that raised $7 million last year, but they do have some internal issues. I mean, we saw they finished uh, 2019 with a, I think a $2 million deficit. They're apparently they're in, they're in significant debt. Um, they've had a number, a number of turnovers in terms of their, of their office. They've had three executive directors in the past three years. Um, so there's some real, internal issues uh, that the UCP, internal financial issues. That I, 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 from everything I hear, they don't really have their financial house in order internally yeah. in the, inside the party. Um, I mean, they had to apply for, I mean, they were kind of mocked for having to apply for the, uh, for the federal wage subsidy uh, during the, uh, during the beginning of the, of the pandemic, because they were, uh, they were afraid they had, they would have to start laying off staff. Um, so it's not, you know, there's the, there, there are obviously problems within the UCP. We'll see how this most current, um, more cur most current executive director handles it in the next year. I wouldn't be surprised to see the UCP numbers bump up. I mean, you know, they're they have a lot of support in this province, and a lot of people with money have have uh, um, are supporters of the UCP. So this is a and probably you know it's a pretty embarrassing thing for the United Conservative Party, and you know, good for the NDP. They you know they get to cheer about something. Um, and a million bucks is a lot of money. So yeah, that's, uh, we'll see. I mean, it's a snapshot. We'll see if, if we'll have to see what happens in the next, uh, in the next few, uh, few quarters and whether the, whether this trend holds or whether the NDP can keep, keep up. And, and what do you think at this point, let's say if the election was held tomorrow, Dave, how do you think the NDP would fare? I think the NDP would gain seats. Yeah, I do. I do. I think they could win up to 30, 30, 35 seats maybe. Um, but I, I think the UCP has, I mean, the UCP has, had, does have, continues to have a lot of support in this province. I think they pull, you know, the, there were polls that came out um, 
uh, a few months ago that showed them between 40 and I think 44%, but for between 40 and 50%, which you can win a majority with with, with that. Um, they have a lot of support in rural Alberta, which is uh, a huge advantage. You know, you basically start the, uh, start the election with, you know, 30, 35 seats in your in in their pocket. I mean, there's a, there are a few rural seats that, that will be competitive, but for the most part, um, most rural seat, seats in rural Alberta are 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 fairly strong UCP, um, or have have been in ha, were in the last election. Um, you know, it's going to come down to Calgary. I mean, the NDP can can you know if the NDP are able to hold on to Edmonton, I think they if the election were held tomorrow, I think they'd probably win every seat. I think Casey Madu would probably lose his seat in legislature. I think the NDP would probably gain uh, a handful more seats back in Calgary. Uh, and their popular vote, I think, would probably go up, uh, but that wouldn't necessarily translate into a ton of seats, just the way that our our, our uh, kind of first-past-the-post system works and the, the huge advantage that the UCP has in the rural areas, and especially in places like South Calgary, where it's just like deep, dark blue, and the UCP just won these massive margins in the last election. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. Last question from Lost and Curious. I uh, would love to hear your comments on Alberta's relaunch strategy and our recent credit downgrade. I didn't, I wasn't paying attention. We got a recent credit downgrade. We're always getting credit downgrades in Alberta. <laughs> it's it's because we don't take our, 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 our revenue problem seriously. No one does. Um, yeah. I, I saw the, um, it was a few weeks ago. There was another, another credit downgrade. Um, I think, I, I think a lot of it had to do with, with uh, it, it, when you, when you read, the, the summaries that these financial institutions that the credit rating agencies release, a lot of it is the same. I mean, the, the ones we've had since the UCP formed government are very similar to the ones that we've had, we had when the NDP formed government was that there's no clear, you know, there's an inability to look at the, at the, at the, the full fiscal picture is, you know, in, under, you know, the, under the UCP, they're looking at spending cuts, but they're not looking at the revenue side of the picture. They're not, no one's, they're not seriously considering a, uh, uh, a sales, uh, a provincial sales tax. They're not seriously considering looking at overdependence on oil and gas revenues. So, I mean, a lot of it is just the same problems that Alberta governments have had for, you know, the past uh, past seventy years. Um, the, the 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 problem facing the current government is that the price of oil is in, it continues to be in the tank, mm -hmm. which was the same problem that the NDP government had. Is the price of oil was in the tank. And uh, you know we need to get off that uh, proverbial roller coaster, as uh, as Jim Prentice uh, uh, so wisely said before he lost the 2015 election. That was like, yeah, I was going to say that was only five years ago. I know it, it feels like a million years ago. It, yeah. it really does. Yeah. Um, any comments on Alberta's relaunch strategy, Dave? Are you you rushing out to restaurants and sending your kids to school? No, I'm and I'm avoiding the gyms and uh, and uh, and I've, well, I've, I've I was I doing that I, anyway. I, <laughs> I don't think I've caught that. I don't think I, I gained the COVID-19, but I definitely gained the COVID-10 over the past few months. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, the relaunch strategy, uh, I mean, they couldn't, what, what, what part do we want to talk about? I mean, well, there's... I, I mean, like, I think I, I, so let, let's imagine that the government's objective is to get the economy moving again. Mm -hmm. If for no other reason, then that probably helps them politically. Mm -hmm. In that case, they're, they've done gradual reopening of, of businesses and uh, restaurants at 50% capacity, which there have been some problems with. I mean, mm -hmm. there was a report a few weeks ago in Edmonton of a few bars having to close because of infections there. Um, you know, but, but imagine that's their, their idea. We need to get the economy moving again. Their desire to reopen schools in the fall makes sense in that context. Now, yeah. is their approach correct? That is definitely up for some debate and Albertans are certainly talking about that. So what do you think about, for example, the school reopening plan? Well, I mean, I think you're right in terms of, I mean, something, in the, the big thing that was missing from a lot of the discussion that was happening early uh, when Jason Kenney, the, when the pre when the premier, when the provincial government started talking about, you know, the Alberta's economic relaunch plan, the big part was that was missing was childcare and what to do with kids. Yeah. So if you want to get some of the most, you know, some of the most productive people in our, in our, in our economy, in our province, uh, have kids. They're just at, they're just at that age. And if you want them to go back to work and be productive at work or be productive while they continue to work from home in certain cases, you got to find somewhere for them to put their kids or something for them, something for them to do with their kids. 
this has been an incredible challenge for for myself and my wife over the past four months is we have a we have a extremely energetic young son um who's you know a very health very healthy extremely energetic kid um but uh but it's important you know he requires a lot of attention and his not like like everybody else's over, over the past or like a lot of people over the past few few months is you know his child care his preschool closed um when the pandemic started or when, when the emergency was declared um and it hasn't been open so you need to, I mean, that was one of the big parts that was missing. Now, what we've seen since over the past few weeks is we had an announcement from the uh, from Adriana Lagrange, the Minister of Education, basically outlining um, a return to school, the return to school announcement. Now, now I believe there were a number of a number of phases or stages that she'd announced that, that you know, there was stage one, which is basically normal return to school, stage two, which had some heightened um, precautions, and then stage three, which I think was everybody goes back home again. Um, they're choosing to go with stage one, um, or the first op- the first option, which is basically return to school, very similar, very normal to what what it was uh, in the spring before before schools were canceled. Now, I don't think I mean I, I you know that's that's a big that is a big concern because you're going to basically going to be in a lot of cases you're going to be putting kids and teachers and uh, school employees back into crowded spaces. Um, you're not really providing them with the kind of supports they need. You're not. You're not. Um, you're not doing the things that 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 other, that that, uh, that business or that businesses or or employers in other industries are doing. If they're, um, for example, in the restaurant industry, only allowing fifty percent capacity or lower capacity, or and uh, in, in, in and um, in in, uh, in other 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 situations like that, where there's not you're not creating full capacity again, but they're creating full capacity schools, and it doesn't appear that they're really giving teachers. The uh, the kind of the resource teachers and school boards the resources they need to actually deal with this kind of stuff. I mean, will there be the uh, you know will there will there be will will teachers be able to be able to uh, space children in terms of being uh, having social distancing? Will they be able to do things like will there be accessible sinks to wash hands? Will there be hand sanitizer? All that kind of stuff, or even to just disinfecting disinfecting um, uh, uh, desks and disinfecting disinfecting uh, classrooms. Um, it seems like they really rushed back into it without really putting the kind of thought that was necessary in order to ensure that children will remain, that you know, students and our, and our kids will remain safe. Um, there's no need, we didn't need to rush back into this. I mean, there's no reason, if they needed a little more time to prepare uh, a safe return to school, they didn't need to start it in September. They canceled yeah. school in, 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 uh, in the middle of the spring. You can, you can, you know, you can delay this. It doesn't, there's no, you know, it doesn't, there's nothing in the Bible that says you got, you got to start school on, on, you know, the, the Tuesday after the September long weekend. Like, <laughs> you know, it's not written in stone. Um, so I, I don't really understand why, why they rushed back. I mean, I understand that the, the, uh, I mean, I understand why school is going to be reopen, reopening, but it does feel like it's rushed. And I think that yes, kids need to be back in school or there needs to be some kind of childcare system created and, and schools need to reopen. But there was no need. I don't think there was any need to to really rush it. Um, yeah. And and it felt like, it felt like Adriana Lagrange couldn't really answer the question. Like couldn't she didn't really um, provide confidence in terms of of that this that this is going to be okay. I mean, I saw yeah. someone on someone on Twitter today was talking about um, referring to the meatpacking plants and the big outbreaks we had in meatpacking plants here in the province of Alberta and Brooks and outside of High River. Um, a few months ago, and talking about the cramped space, and and you know people on buses, kids or people on buses, or people in packing cars, and how quickly COVID spread through those communities. Um, and it's, I mean, you know, it sounds a lot like schools. It's you're putting kids in crowded spaces, and you know, if you if you've never, you know, if you've never been in a school and you've never met a kid, then you might think it's easy for you know kids to socially distance in uh, in in crowded spaces, but it's just not the case. Yeah. So I, I'm 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 concerned, and I think a lot of Albertans and a lot of parents are concerned about it as well. And I'm just thinking, you know, counting my blessings that I don't have that we're way that we were planning a waiting year before we put my son into kindergarten. So, yeah, I mean, it still doesn't necessarily solve your childcare dilemma, right? And that's no, that's no, true for a lot of parents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I noticed that there were there was a an announcement the government made. Um, Children's Services Minister Rebecca Schultz made an announcement. Uh, the provincial government um, negotiated some funding with the federal government. Uh, for childcare, and I didn't get a chance to look at that in detail, but uh, I'm, you know, was pleased to see that there was some cooperation between the province and the feds on uh, on funding for childcare, and hopefully that can uh, that can result in uh, in um, 
in creating more affordable childcare spaces for people who need them. For sure, yeah. Well, thank you, Lost and Curious, for your questions. This episode of the Dave Berta Podcast is brought to you by Shift by Alberta Innovates. Our province is a hotbed of innovation. Shift puts the spotlight on Albertan innovators working to improve the world one ripple at a time. Here's a recent episode you might find interesting. It's one in which Shift talks to Connie Stacy of Growing Greener Innovations. Connie is an Edmonton-based entrepreneur who designed the Green Gin. She talks about her journey to become a successful female entrepreneur, having contracts with the U.S. Army and Canadian military, as well as being a woman in the male-dominated space of deep tech. Find Shift by Alberta Innovates on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find it at shift.albertainnovates.ca. That's shift.albertainnovates.ca. The Dave Berta Podcast is also brought to you by Straight from the CPA's Mouth, a new podcast series created by the CPA Education Foundation and funded by the Heshi CPA Knowledge Center. Alberta's Chartered Professional Accountants, or CPAs, are experts on a wide range of topics and issues of interest to Albertans. Straight from the CPA's mouth has discussions on topics important to you, from leadership skills and achieving career potential to financial literacy and how to make your tax refund bigger. Whether you are a university student, a new Albertan, or a parent, you'll find something of value on this unique podcast. You'll find Straight from the CPA's mouth on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or on the CPA Education Foundation's website at cpaalberta.ca slash foundation. That's cpaalberta.ca slash foundation. The next one is from Biff. Biff asks, is the NDP an effective opposition? Uh, Biff goes on to say, granted, I only follow a few of them on Twitter, but it seems like they're they're constantly playing political whack-a-mole and aren't really hitting on a singular message or narrative to convince more than their base to support them. Dave, is the NDP an effective opposition? <clears throat> well, they can be. Like, they could be. I think a lot more effective than they are being right now. Um, mm. I think they. I think they've. They've. The NDP are effective on 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 a number of issues, but I think that. I mean, Biff raises a good point. There does seem like they're playing a bit of a game of a political whack-a-mole, and part of that is a result of of the government basically. Um, going after every single issue, uh, you know, you know, doing a, d a dozen things at a time. And it's, it's distracting as an opposition and as an opposition critic, you know, you want in an MLA, you want to be out there and you want to be talking about your issue. And if the government's going after every single issue, you're going to have, you know, a dozen MLAs, a dozen opposition MLAs who are going to want to be holding scrums every day or putting out press releases or sending out tweets mm -hmm. on different issues. And then it becomes a lot of white noise. And I mean, I think they, I mean, that's an intentional tactic that the government is uh, that the government is doing is using uh in order to because um, i think they've you know they anticipate the they were in the opposition they know what it's like they anticipate that and they, they have an idea of how the ndp operates i think the ndp could be a lot more effective if it focused in on certain issues um for example the like i'm thinking the municipal campaign finance stuff mm -hmm. that that is a very very important issue but they're like maybe 50 people in the province of Alberta who are like really passionate and really understand that issue. And, yeah. and the NDP spent a lot of time on that issue publicly and going after the UCP and yeah, the changes aren't positive and they're not great. Um, but like, you're not gaining, I don't, I don't know how much you're gaining by going after that issue. So, I mean, talking about, I mean, really, you know, if the NDP, I think the NDP, you know, they, 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 you know, they have a lot of territory, friendly territory on healthcare, friendly territory on education. These are their strong issues, healthcare, education, even the, the environment. Um, but going after the UCP on issues like jobs on, I mean, the, the Jason Kenney ran on jobs, the economy and pipelines. And at this point, you know, jobs, like the economy's, the economy is, is in the tank. Um, because of COVID and because of the uh, the the collapse, the further collapse in the international price of oil, um, but it's also but jobs are also in uh, in peril because of some of the decisions that this government has been making. Mm -hmm. um, so you know they can go you know they should go after go after the UCP on jobs, go after the UCP on the economy in terms of of of, uh, of the negative changes that they've made, and then, I mean, the NDP are as pro pipeline as the you know, as the United Conservative Party, but. <laughs> But the, the UCP put 
you know, $7.5 billion dollars. Um, or one, I think you put 1.5 and then promise an additional six or additional six for the Keystone XL pipeline, uh, which at this point only appears like that it's going to be built or completed in the United States if Donald Trump gets elected, reelected as president in November. And I mean, the polls, polls being what they are, but I mean, it looks like Joe, Joe Biden's doing pretty well at the moment. So that seems like a pretty bad investment in terms of, of, of the Alberta government. But so I wouldn't necessarily focus on, wouldn't necessarily focus on pipelines a lot, but I would, because they agree on those issues and but talking about i mean talking about the ucp's record on jobs talking about the ucp record ucp's record on on the economy and and the impact that that uh, that cuts to healthcare and education will have on on the economy and jobs uh uh the consequences of the government's fight with doc this ongoing fight with doctors i mean you have a situation where doctors in i mean i think it was uh pincher creek they're basically uh, you know, they might have to close the hospital. And I think it's, the situation is the same in Sundry and Rocky Mountain House because doctors are, are feeling so disrespected by this government in the middle of a pandemic uh, mm-hmm. that, that they're leaving. So, I, you know, I think there, there, there are a lot of um, issues that the NDP gained gain ground on if they were maybe practice a little more message, message discipline and focused in on, on certain narratives rather than kind of doing the scramble free-for-all. Which is very tempting to do, and I know I know that's easy for me to say, sitting on the outside. Um, but it does seem like there's a lot of white noise, and that's a, that's a challenge, a real problem for the opposition. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks for that question a bit. Yeah, thanks for the question. Next one is from Amanda on Instagram. She asks, "How do you think the previous PC governments would be dealing with COVID? How would it be different from the current government?" So imagine, Dave. Imagine Ed Stelmack as premier. I I I think I was thanks thanks for the question, Amanda. This is this is really good. It was a really good kind of thought exercise. And I think the big difference, one of the big differences, is I don't think the I look at the the previous progressive conservative premiers. Um, you know, I'm thinking Ed Stelmack. I'm thinking Jim Prentice, um, Allison Redford. I I don't necessarily I don't think that they would be at war with everybody at the same time as as or continue warring with 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 doctors continue warring with teachers and nurses continue um continue massive changes to to um, uh, municipal election laws uh continue the privatization of parks i don't think they would continue that um through a global pandemic because i think that I mean, the the progressive conservatives, for all their faults, they were a natural governing party. We talked a little bit about this with the liberals uh, a couple questions ago. The PCs were a natural governing party, and governing is sure they played a lot of politics, but like they were government, and they mostly ignored their opposition. So they wouldn't, you know, the PCs wouldn't spend any time attacking the NDP, just like the UCP spends every second attacking the NDP. Right? It's this, this concept of negative negative partisanship. Um, the PCs would, I, I, I suspect, would put that stuff aside because they'd realize that uh, we don't like them, but we have to work with the unions to, because we want to make sure we have a line of communications with our teachers when we send kids back to school. We want to make sure we have a line of communications with nurses and doctors to figure out what's going on in the healthcare system and, and what employees, what staff are saying. And those unions also have the ability to communicate with our staff in a way that we don't. So we, you know, we want to know what, what they're doing and we want to know what's going on. And and I think that would probably be one of the key differences is I think there'd be a lot, I think it would be a lot more collaborative. And I think this, that, that would be a big difference between the UCP and the um, the former PC governments. I think the PCs would probably be a lot more collaborative because yeah, they'd be, they're interested in governing. They probably would have uh, sat down with the Alberta Medical Association and hammered out a deal before things went off the rails the way they did with they, uh, Mr. They, they would, yeah, they would have sent Dave Hancock in and uh, and and uh, you know, Mr. Hancock would have settled it out or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like they would have, you know, it would have, it would have been. It's like the uh, you know the switch from uh, Ron Leipert to a Jeans Wazdeski in terms of the health ministry. You know, you have Ron Leipert who's you know bashing heads and yelling at people, and then you have Jeans uh, Wazdeski who's you know the Wizard of Zwaz. You know, the the, uh, the, big, the the big the biggest charmer in Alberta who was was the biggest charmer in Alberta politics, right? I, I think they would have they would have switched and uh, and. And at least for the duration of the pandemic, they wouldn't have uh, been causing all this political turmoil. But the PCs were a different party. That's this, you know we talked about yeah. this already. Is this was, they were a big tent uh, governing party. They were a conservative party, but they were a big tent coalition. And the United Conservative Party 
is very much more has very much uh, a harder edge ideological bent. This is the the federal conservatives. This is the Wild Rose Party. This is kind of the right wing edge of the of the former progressive conservatives. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks it's for that. It's question. a different beast. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that question, Amanda. Our next one is from Nick on Facebook. Uh, Nick goes into quite a bit of. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to read the whole thing though, because because Nick's okay. making a point here. So. Nick asks, how is it that after over a century of oil booms and busts, do we have so little to show for it and no one seems to mind or care to really investigate? So Nick goes on to say, our heritage savings fund would only cover three to four months of provincial spending. The Alberta Energy Regulator has told us that there will be a 75 to $250 billion cleanup bill from oil and gas development. Our current deficit is on track to hit $100 billion within a few sh short years. So I suppose I'm wondering why there seems to be such little willingness to step back and ask who, how, and why Alberta, nearly a third larger than all of Germany with the second largest unconventional oil deposits on the planet, could be in the financial and environmental state that it is in, and yet no one is having to answer for it. <laughs> Nick, uh, Nick's upset. You it, can tell. And he's right. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank, thanks. Thanks for the, the question, Nick. I, I Okay. I think we... I want to approach this, this question in a, it's a good question. I want to approach it two ways. I think, first of all, I think we have a lot to show for the wealth we have in this province. We have parks, be beautiful provincial parks. We have beautiful, amazing museums in this province. We have beautiful art galleries. We have schools. We have hospitals. We have uh, roads, highways that, you know, that, that in some cases are, are, are immaculate compared to our, our neighbor to the east. I'm talking about Saskatchewan and their, uh, their landmine filled roads. Um, we've, we've done a lot with our oil wealth in this province. Um, and we have a quality of life. And a lot of that has led to, um, you know, the, the, the high quality of life that we have in this province. We have beautifully, we have, we have huge, huge world leading universities in this province. Um, and a lot of our, and our oil wealth has been a big part of all of that. So I think we do have a lot to show for it. Um, in terms of the institutions that we've been, we've built and, and the, the, the infrastructure that we've built and the education and healthcare systems that we've funded and, and built. Um, what we don't have a lot to show for, and, 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 uh, and Nick alluded to this in his question, is we haven't really saved a lot of money. So we, we poured a lot of money, pre previous governments poured a lot of money into infrastructure, poured a lot of money into, into capital um, capital spending, but we didn't do the kind of spending, or pardon me, didn't do the kind of saving that we probably needed to do. So, the the Heritage Savings Trust Fund, which on which I think lost about two billion dollars over the past during the during the 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 recent uh, the recent drop in the economy, it's sitting around sixteen billion dollars, which is a lot of money, but isn't a lot of money in terms of government, right? Because you have a, a provincial government where the the provincial budget is about fifty billion dollars, so. Back in the in the 80s, or back in the, in the 1970s, when when funds like the Heritage Savings Trust Fund were created, I mean, there was a vision. I mean, Peter Lougheed, obviously, they, there was a vision. There was a vision that, that Alberta needed to save money, but the myth of the vision kind of uh, uh, drowns out the reality that at the point at that point, the Alberta government had so much money coming into its coffers that it needed to put the money somewhere. Because they were afraid that that the federal government would would come in and and start seizing assets, because you had this provincial government that would be so much more wealthier um, by magnitudes, more wealthy than the federal government. So there was vision, or there was vision, or just a just a pure political necessity to put the money away somewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, but then, when the price of oil dropped, when the price of oil collapsed, and there was the big recession in the 1980s, the Alberta government stopped investing in the Heritage Savings Trust Fund. This is and it's the trust fund. The Heritage Fund is just one example. But it wasn't until the 2000s. It was actually Ed Stelmack when he became premier. The province started reinvesting serious money back in, and then the price of oil fell again, and and the economy wasn't great. But but had there been more, in, had there been a a, a more consistent vision. Um, to and a more consistent uh, approach and and commitment to putting funds into the Heritage Savings Trust Fund, we probably would have a significant amount more. Now we probably have a hundred, you know, hundred billion dollars in the bank right now uh, in terms of the Heritage Fund. Um, so it, you know, it's a lot, a lot of people point to Norway and the one trillion dollar um, savings fund that that the Norwegian government has. And I mean, there's a lot of differences between Alberta and Norway. And I'm not saying Alberta is Norway. Or Alberta could be Norway, 
but we could, you know, we could have a lot more than 16 billion then uh, if, if we'd had political leaders over the, uh, you know, following Lougheed that had decided that that was a priority. Yeah. Um, but they decided it wasn't in when Ralph Klein became premier, they cut taxes. So that was a, that was a, you know, uh, forfeited, uh, um, forfeited revenue and for, um, uh, you know, an opportunity instead of, of keeping taxes at the level they were and investing, you know, investing the rest in, in, in into a savings fund for the future, they decided to cut taxes and, you know, we don't, we didn't really have a lot to show for that afterward because a lot of that money would just leave. So. And how come no one gets in trouble for not doing the right thing? Like, well, we have elections. We, we do have elections, and yeah. you know, the, the Progressive Conservative Party did eventually leave. And I think, I think that actually had to do a lot with had the fiscal mis, mis mismanagement and the belief that the the PCs had mismanaged our oil wealth. Had, I think that actually had quite a bit to do with the 20, 2015 election. I mean, at that point, twenty in twenty fourteen, the price of oil dropped. There was a lot of talk about people asking, "Where did the money go?" What happened? You know, like, uh, you know, a, a year ago, we were rolling in the dough and now we're broke. Like, we're like, where did the money go? So I think that I think, I mean, it's less of a discussion now. But I think if you go back um, five years ago, I think that was really something on the top of people's minds, because, uh, you know, we go through these boom bust cycles and they are cycles. Um, but a lot of people seem to forget that that it is a cycle. So when when the economy is doing really well and people are rolling, you know, buying new pickup trucks and buying ATVs and, you know, and, and at the, at that point, it looks like it's going to last forever, but it's, that's not the nature of, of how, um, how oil works. It's not the nature of how international commodities work, especially, and especially in a province like Alberta, where we have absolutely zero influence over the price of oil. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, it's, it's kind of like a complicated question, but at the same time, it's not like, we're the ones who have to hold them accountable so we have to decide how much, to what degree we care about this. Yeah, yeah. So it's, I mean, it's a missed opportunity. It's a real missed, like, historical missed opportunity, I think, because, I mean, who knows what, who knows what the price of oil is going to be like. But I mean, whether we're going to have another big oil boom in this province or not, it's yet to be seen. So yeah. Well, thank you, Nick, for your question. Let's move on to this one from Cindy Lou Who Twelve on Instagram. Cindy Lou asks, "Are there changes coming?" to how rural municipalities can tax oil and gas, presumably oil and gas companies. Uh, this is probably coming on the heels of some companies not paying taxes to municipalities because of their lack of revenue. Have you heard any rumblings on this one, Dave? Yeah, so that's part of it. And we talked about that on a podcast a, a few months ago when we were talking about, at the beginning of the year, when we were talking about orphan, orphan and abandoned wells. Um, but I think specifically what... Cindy Liu Hu is is talking about, and it's actually funny because I read a press, I, I read something about it earlier this week, and I actually had a discussion about this with some rural mayors back in March um, about changes that the province was was proposing. So from I I kind of I, I tracked down some information. This is one of those things where it's if you live in the cities or in the urban areas, you're probably not going to hear a lot about this. But if you live in the rural areas in the counties, you're probably going to hear a lot about it because you're you're your um, your county mayor or your county reeve is probably going to talk a lot about this. So what it was is the province of Alberta reduced the property of oil and gas companies. So they they re they reduced the property tax on oil and gas companies through changes to an assessment model, which kind of regulates the properties in the oil and gas sector. So they the changes they made decreases the revenue that municip rural municipalities will get. So it's basically a tax. It's basically a tax break to the to the oil and gas companies in in the rural areas. Um, but the province is what's decided that. So the rural municipalities didn't really get an opportunity to decide that on their on their own. But it's having a direct impact on the revenue that's coming in from the oil and gas or to from the oil and gas companies, oil and gas operations to the counties who are already having a lot of problems with collecting uh, collecting tax revenue from these companies, oil some of these oil and gas companies as well. I think it was we heard earlier this year, I think it was like 20, there was $20 million or something in outstanding taxes that some of these um, oil and gas companies just were refusing to either either couldn't or were just refusing to pay the rural yeah. municipalities. So the 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 province uh, the argument from the province, from what I understand, is that you know this is a tax break. It'll help spurn um, spurn employment. It'll help uh, you know help boost uh, boost boost business in the counties. The but 
what some of the counties are, again, I'm talking, I think I looked at the County of Cam or Camrose County's website where they had a statement about it, is the, you know, sure it might, you know, increase business, but it's because it's basically a, uh, a tax cut, it's not necessarily going to lead to more revenue for the counties because there's nothing, there's nothing saying that these oil and gas companies need to reinvest or keep money inside the county in terms of the, in terms of their profits. So, yeah. So that, that's, that's essentially what this is. I'm going to look a little further, a little deeper into this because it is something that I, I kind of flagged a few months ago when, when I was talking to those, uh, those uh, rural municipal politicians. Um, and I think it is something that, that, uh, that is going to have a real impact on a lot of really cash strapped counties out there and uh, municipal districts out there right now. So sure. I'm going to flag this and, I'm, and uh, I might write something, might write something about this a little later. So thanks so much for the question. And Hey, if you're a rural, um, rural politician, uh, or someone in rural Alberta who knows a lot about this and who is interested in uh, in sharing more information, uh, please shoot me a line because I would be very interested in, in uh, the city bumpkin would be very interested in learning more. Yeah, educate us. We'd like to know. Uh, our last question comes from Peter Fortna. Peter asks, <laughs> whoever thought mask wearing would be the next uh, Alberta legislature culture war battlefield? Now, you know, it's not it's not as though we've had provincial politicians saying don't wear masks like some of the governors in the United States were a few weeks ago. But I think what Peter's touching on is that it's it's been up to municipalities like the city of Calgary and Edmonton, just by, for example, to mandate mask wearing in public spaces while the province kind of says, well, they don't say anything. W what do you think of this, Dave? Do you think that Jason Kenney should be leading here? I think that there is a strong, uh, a, a strong, very vocal minority that doesn't want to wear masks, and I think, I suspect they tend, <clears throat> I suspect they probably tend to be UCP voters. Maybe I mean, not not completely, because I know there are a number of uh, you know anti-vaxxer hippie types who are who are also also kind of fall into this uh, this weird Venn diagram uh, of of anti-maskers. Um, but I think it's, I mean, I think that 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 what you end up having when the province doesn't mandate something or doesn't direct something is that you end up having a hodgepodge. And that seems to be what we're, what, uh, what we're going to have in the province of Alberta is both the city of Calgary and city of Edmonton have decided to do something. Um, I see that the city of Lethbridge was debating it today, a motion to uh, have mandatory masking today. I didn't get a chance to see what the result of that meeting was, um, but you're going to have a, you're going to have a hodgepodge the the provincial government municipalities are creatures of the province the province in so many other areas is shows no hesitancy to just come in barge in and impose change impose policy and impose changes on municipalities and this just seems this is very clearly a public health issue and it very clearly falls under the mandate of the province but they just they don't want to deal with it um so what we're going to have is uh is a hodgepodge and and you're going to have a hodgepodge and you're going to have municipalities that are going to be passing policies or bylaws that they don't have the resources to actually enforce and uh, i think something like this needs to come um, come from the province um, come from dina hinshaw who is essentially an employee of the minister of the, of the department of health um, she's not an independent officer like someone like the auditor general or the elections commission or uh, well the elections commissioner doesn't exist anymore uh, or the chief electoral officer is what i, is what I meant to say um, but I does I do think there needs to be um, some provincial leadership on this, and and uh, um, I think early on we saw a lot of really um, real positive leadership from the province during COVID. Um, I think that it was very clear early on in the pandemic that Premier Kenny and Tyler Shandro, Health Minister Tyler Shandro, were listening to Dina Hinshaw and were listening to public health officials, and at some point um, they became more concerned about relaunching the economy than. Um, than public health, it would appear. So um, I think with uh, you know with with uh, second wave apparently back on back on. I mean, the Dina Hinshaw today, Dr. Dina Hinshaw today said that the uh, the curve is no longer flat in Alberta. Um, I think we're back up to over 700 cases in Calgary alone, 1,400 cases across the province. Uh, I think there'll be a lot of pressure on the province to uh, to move on this, and you know. <sighs> It would be great if, uh, you know, if everybody just went out and was very, you know, was thoughtful and mindful and courteous and wore a mask when you're in, in crowded public places uh, and wash your hands and don't touch your, don't touch your face or stay home when you're sick. That'd be great. And we wouldn't need, uh, 
we wouldn't need provincial orders, but uh, um, I've been to the grocery store a couple times in the past few weeks and uh, people are not wearing masks, at least where I'm living. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've experienced the same thing. It's been, uh, we were in Home Depot this weekend and it was probably 50, 50 people wearing masks. It's, mm -hmm. uh, it's just a really simple thing you can do to keep other people safe. So, yeah. And I mean, the government was literally giving them away for free. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I, I guess, I mean, I, I, what, what do you think of this, Adam? So one of the, I've been thinking about the government, the Alberta government's, um, their distribution of disposable uh, face masks through drive-throughs. And they, over the past few months, I think the Alberta government has distributed like 60 million uh, disposable masks, masks across the province of Alberta through McDonald's, um, Tim Hortons and A&W drive-throughs, which is, you know, I think that's actually kind of a, I mean, the Alberta government was mocked, or the UCP was mocked for for choosing drive-throughs to uh, to distribute them. And, and I realize a lot of people don't have vehicles and, and it doesn't reach everybody, but I think it's actually, it was actually kind of a clever idea. Yes. Um, and I mean, these they're, these are big multinational companies with with logistics networks that are probably, you know, would probably rival the United States Armed Forces in some cases. Um, so if you want to get a lot of masks out, that's probably a good way, you know, an effective way to do it. But it seemed to be that that was just like, well, that was one part of the the face mask public health campaign. It was getting them to people was one thing, but they never, the Alberta government never followed up with why it's important to wear them and how to wear them. You know, it's, it's funny you'd bring that up because I was thinking about this the other day and it, it goes back to that question we were asked about how previous PC governments would have dealt with this. Mm -hmm. So I used to work for an advertising agency and we did a lot of what's called social marketing, which is basically behavior change marketing. And a lot of it focused around sexual health. So we did a campaign, uh, I can't, it must've been like 2013 or 2014 called plenty of SIF to raise awareness about incidents of syphilis infections. And the objective was to sow doubt among young folks who maybe think I'm not going to get infected with that. Uh, to the point where they would actually go and get tested. So the behavior we were trying to change was not only to make them think about, you know, protecting themselves before they had sex, but then if they were, if they had any doubts to go and get tested and we increased testing, I'm going to get the figure wrong, but it was something like 17% year over year. That's incredible. Was, yeah, it was huge. Now that was a government under... Uh, I don't know if it was if it was 2013. Who was it, Dave? Was it Stelman? It would have, would have been well. It would have been Redford. Versus, would have been, yeah, yeah, it would have been. It was Redford. Would have been Redford at that point. Sure. Now I'm, I might be getting the dates wrong, but in any event, the, the client there was Alberta Health and Alberta Health Services, led by the chief medical officer. So they were empowered and had budget to engage in, you know, campaigns that were more than just informational campaigns. Because what I see out there is wash your hands, wear a mask, maintain your distance. But there's nothing like really impactful. Mm -hmm. Like, a, you know, you think of like old, you know, if you've got some time, look up seatbelt safety advertisements from Australia and New Zealand. They are so impactful and so effective at behavior change. And that's what we need. And that's, that's one of the things that's missing. Like you want to flatten the curve. Yeah. Dina Hinshaw did a fine job, March, April, May, going on television, doing her daily briefings, but there's wear out of the message after a while. You need to find new ways to deliver it. And I think that's what's missing. And it's, and that's why the curve is no longer flat. We've missed the opportunity to, to talk to Albertans on different terms about changing their behavior. Mm -hmm. Well, hopefully someone, uh, if anybody from, uh, from Alberta health is listening to this or if Dr. Hinshaw, you're listening to this, uh, um, you know, there's a real, there's a real opportunity and an urgency right now to, uh, to engage in this sort of social marketing to, uh, you know, get beyond the kind of just traditional public education campaigns. But, but I know we've got a provincial government that's not super keen on spending money on stuff. Mm -hmm. like this, so. Oh yeah. But yeah, but they're super keen on spending. They're not, you know, they're, they're super keen on spending money on some stuff. I mean, you know, yeah. like, you know, Jason Kenney basically yawned and there was $7.5 billion for a pipeline. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, you know, government has the ability to access money and access funds like like no one else can and i think yeah. that that is one of the things that uh, that the pandemic has shown us is that you know at almost at almost every level i don't think necessarily at municipally i think municipal governments are their hands are, are quite a bit more tied than the other levels but provincially and federally governments can i mean provincial governments can't print money as as william Eberhardt discovered but 
um, uh, you know, they can, they have access to types of funds that, uh, that, that, you know, n no one else really does. So if, yeah. if there was a real um, desire to really, to really push this and to, to make the, the, uh, the, the mass distribution campaign effective, I think you really, they would really need to look at, at the other elements of it and maybe, maybe introduce some of the kind of the social, social marketing stuff that you were talking about, Adam. Yeah. Yeah. Dare to dream. Yeah. No, that was, that was, yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> Those are all the questions we have for this episode, Dave. So thanks to Peter Fortner for that last one and to everyone. Uh, those were really good questions. Yeah, that was great. I, uh, yeah, thanks everyone for this, everyone for the great questions. I really, uh, really enjoy these, uh, these kind of periodic Q and a episodes that we do. And, uh, in, in the midst of the summer where there's just so much to talk about, it actually kind of makes it easier to uh, to do the Q and A because we can talk about a whole bunch of stuff rather than just talk about one one specific issue. So, um, yeah, thanks everyone. Thanks for everyone everyone for the questions. Thanks Adam for uh, for being here and for making this podcast sound so good. You are the magic behind the podcast, Adam. Well, I'm glad I, glad I could help, Dave. Thank you. <laughs> we are we are a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. Uh, you can send us your feedback on Twitter and Instagram at, at Dave Berta or on the Dave Berta Facebook page, or you can email us at podcast at daveberta.ca. And if you feel so inclined, if you've enjoyed the program today, you can uh, please leave a review. We like the five stars. Uh, leave it a review review where you've listened, where you download the, the podcast. And, uh, and yeah, we'd love that. So thank you so much, everyone, for listening. I hope you have a wonderful summer. Uh, don't forget the sunscreen, wear a hat when it's, uh, when it's, uh, too sunny, have an umbrella when it's raining, wash your hands, don't cough on people, uh, wear a mask in public and stay healthy and, uh, and we'll see you in a bit.